Hello and welcome to part 11 of our Understanding Class series. Today is Monday the 25th of April 2022 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. We continue chapter 3, the meta-theoretical foundations of Charles Tilley's durable inequality. This week I have the new patron Julian Nye and the returning patrons Donal and Alex to thank. If you like those extra patron-only episodes and creating Discord over on the Discord server, head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollars. Also, if you'd like to help contribute to Donal and myself's book project, please, please head on over to the website, the theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com, where you can donate. Every donor will get a signed copy of the book, their name in the acknowledgements, and can join in a reading group once it's published. Their response so far has been really appreciated and we are feverishly writing and theorising as we speak. The link to the site is in the show notes, as are the link to the slides. Okay, let's join the discussion. Okay, so he distills the core explanation of categorical inequality into three propositions. One, Organizationally installed categorical inequality facilitates exploitation. So this is a claim about the effects of categorical inequality and exploitation. The former facilitates the latter. Yeah, so it's this is not a case of they were black and then we exploited them. It's more like use of race facilitated the exploitation, say, for example. Organizations whose survival depends on exploitation therefore tend to adopt categorical inequality. So this is a selection argument. The functional trait, categorical inequality, is adopted through an unspecified process because it is functional. And finally, because organizations adopting categorical inequality deliver greater returns to their dominant members, and because a portion of those returns goes to organizational maintenance, such organizations tend to crowd out other types of organizations. So this is, in effect, a quasi-Darwinian selection explanation that explains why the functional traits generalize so well. Any comments here on that triplicate? Checks out. I really enjoy I, I really found the, the, the discussion of, of how uh, he claims, you know, these things operate functionally and, you know, even like the, the kind of Darwinian explanation. I, I found it very insightful, I must say. I, I really kind of... I, I thought there was a lot of insight in this chapter in, the, in this book of Tilly's. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's nice to see a kind of uh, Darwinian argument of this sort in, I guess, what is the crossover realm between sociology and economics. It's, uh, I guess, close to like institutional economics in some ways. But yeah, pretty pretty interesting to see because uh, there's so much emphasis on physics and that stuff. You were saying. For at the the beginning of this slide, that the the sort of like race and exploitation wasn't a good example of this, and and I actually think that that is wrong. It's it's kind of like one of the er examples of this, like where the Portuguese and then Spanish instituting their empires in in the New World, utilizing especially the the Portuguese and the the generation of the the plantation system. That wasn't a strictly racialized thing at first, and it was the sort of like primary 
category upon which that was sort of justified was like Christian versus non-Christian. But when you started having people who were enslaved in these plantation systems converting into Christianity, they had to they had to sort of like expand that to to be not just like Christian versus non-Christian. And because like a lot of the non-Christians were not of the Portuguese or European descent, that uh, they would tend to be more more of African or indigenous descent. Therefore, you had a kind of morphing into a, a racialized category that was much easier to identify and easier to uphold because you could readily uh, mark somebody as enslaved versus slaver. It was generally a, a much quicker and more effective way of categorizing people into into an oppressed class for the purpose of exploitation. It's a little yeah. bit overly simplified, but I, I think it's a, a pretty fair like overview of like the beginnings of the plantation and slave system in the new world. Yeah. Anybody can lie about what they're what god they believe in, but you can't rely lie about the color of your skin. Well, I mean that is why racial categories emerge from two things. They emerge from that and then the expulsion of Jews and Muslims from Spain, because that's where the idea of new Christians versus old Christians comes from. And that became immediately racialized. So like before that you do have like vague nebulous language about like late medieval complaints about black being bad or whatever, but it's not a coherent racial category until it's tied to production are to trying to gather property and primitive accumulation because what were they trying to do with the new christians they were trying to get their stuff to more strongly establish the christian state in spain ah those damn spaniards okay problem three problem three how to stabilize and reproduce categorical inequalities while categorical inequalities may facilitate exploitation and opportunity hoarding they also pose new challenges to organizations since they potentially constitute the bases for solidarities and networks opposed to the dominant categories. While they reduce the transaction costs for sustaining exploitation and opportunity hoarding, they also potentially reduce transaction costs for collective struggles by subordinates. Categorical inequality sets in motion a pattern of contradictory effects. Uh, so solution to problem three, emulation and adaptation. To the extent that categorical inequality is diffused throughout society, emulation, uh, so that it appears ubiquitous and inevitable, people living within these categories elaborate daily routines, adaptation, that enable them to adapt to the conditions they face. The categorical inequalities themselves will be stabilized. Emulation and adaptation lock distinctions into place, making them habitual and sometimes even essential to exploiters and exploited alike. The result is both exploited and excluded groups are less likely to form the kinds of oppositional solidarities that pose a serious threat. So we have uh, emulation, which is the diffusion of categorical inequality throughout society. And then we have elaboration of daily routines that allow uh, people to adapt to the conditions of categorical inequality, which is adaptation. And because adaptation is like a continuous and repetitive process, it locks the distinctions into place, uh, making them habitual. Uh, so therefore you get, you know, ideology, quote unquote, sometimes even essential to the exploiters and exploited alike. 
So for instance, you know, the classic problem in Marxism of like, well, we don't really want to create working class supremacy as our object, but one way to motivate the working class is to build up working class identity. So how then does that identity dissolve itself? That, that, that sort of question of is, is, a, is a product of adaptation. Yeah. That's the stuff that keeps left communist up at night. Right. Similarly with race, like you think about ways to adapt and, and reduce racial tensions. Most of them, most of them actually need racial solidarity to work. And so the adaption actually also reifies the category, even if it's anti that, like, even if it's an anti-racist adaption, it still reifies the category. And it's, it is, it, this is where I think Marxists have to really think about how to approach this stuff because it, you end up with a lot of like things that make no sense. Like if we racialize everything, eventually nothing will be racialized, maybe. And you might think, well, that's ridiculous. That's our argument for proletarianization. If we proletarianize everything, then proletariat will go away. Yeah, and, and well, you I know, think, it, we, we. I, I think that the the difference is that if if you racialize everything is the same as like proletarianizing everything because um like the proletarianizing everything is like bringing everything into the same category whereas like racializing everything tends to more reify distinctions between categories uh, but there's no way to proletarianize everything like that's the kind of the that that's actually what I don't mean to throw endnotes number four at you because we're not talking about it right now, but like that's literally what they're dealing with. And also the analytical Marxists started dealing with, with the, with the Adam Perezorski work. I think I said that right. Probably didn't where you keep on getting, you keep on pushing for, for a collective actor and with proletarianization to work against the bourgeoisie, but you have a threshold on it. And then by the time that you do start achieving uh, universal proletarianization, everything falls within the category. What happens is new, all this opportunity hoarding looks like bigger and bigger distinctions. That's actually what they don't use these terminologies because they write in obnoxious critical theory speak. But this is exactly what they're saying is like for mo if 95 95 percent of the people are wage earners and they also contribute in some way to productive value, which even managers do then all these distinctions and all these opportunity cul-de-sacs start seeming more and more important to people because they can't see the primary contradiction at all. And I, I didn't realize it, but that is describing an emulation and an, adap and an adaptation problem. It really is. Yeah, like when it becomes, uh, when it becomes you so immersed in it that you can't see the actual relation, the key relation, you know, you're kind of fucked. That's the... Uh... Yeah, and like, this was the first this 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 line here, like the talk about like the 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 reduction in the in the transaction cost actually allows the, the people who are exploited, say, to to see their own like kind of category themselves uh, and reduces their cost to organization. This was like the the one of the few bits so far I've read in the book that it's uh, nearly talking towards a kind of revolutionary kind of uh, horizon, you know something that i think that's largely lacking in 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 the book so far but then he goes on here on the solution to totally kick that in the in the nuts and destroy it yeah i mean it's i i, I it's contradictory but it also tends to at 
like temporarily stabilize itself. And then I guess the other thing I was thinking about, you know, in terms of sort of Marx's argument is like, well, the proletarians are sort of defined by the fact that they must work to live. They don't possess anything in them in themselves. But I guess, yeah, in a universal situation of proletarianization, opportunity hoarding begins to look like possessions. Yeah, right? it really does. Yeah. Like getting your kids into better schools so they can get a better work position. I mean, like, just think about it. It really does look like yeah. possessions. And then you can confuse it with non-productive property, like, I don't know, having a deed on a house that you can't, you know, that doesn't have productive land tied to it or whatever. Then... Um, you, it it can be a really conscious a consciousness distorting to use Marxist phraseology kind of situation. To speak to Tom for a second, Tom, I think you're right. I think some of this is more EO right than Tilly. EO right seems categorically allergic to ever having to admit that maybe you can't just reform your way out of anything. Like that's call that uh, call that analytic Marxism disease or something. But that like they all seem to be like, well, revolution's impossible. Bye. So yeah. Like it's a very it's a very historically situated thing, isn't it? Revolution is impossible. <laughs> they have never existed in world history. History is static. Okay, come into my analytical Marxist class. Right, let's move on. The explanatory condition or strategy continued. So here we're coming on to the man with probably the greatest name in the world ever, Stinchcomb. I I think that's <laughs> like where they, where did they get this guy? <laughs> Fucking hell. Stinchcomb's functional explanation. Okay, so... Uh, it was it was uh, functionally necessary for him to be called Stinchcomb. <laughs> what was the function of it then? Come on, explain to, that. To, to amuse you, Tom? To amuse you? <laughs> That's definitely... It's been his primary function. Um, okay, so we've got three boxes here where he's going to basically kind of put together this general idea we, he's been developing so far. So you have this, like, systemic tension... You know, then you have a problem in need of a solution, and then you have a functionally explained solution to a problem, and they keep on reacting back. So, like your 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 functional explanation to say a problem that's caused by like a tension or a contradiction in the system, that solution like can act back onto the problem and create a secondary second order effect, and then you can functionally solve that one, and so on and so on. You get into this kind of like loop of functional solutions to problems. The, the problem itself is generated by a causal process referred to by Stinchcomb as a tension in the system. Like I kind of think there's like a kind of contradiction or whatever. Through some kind of selection mechanism, the black box of functional explanations, the problem stimulates the production of a solution, which in turn dampens the problem. This reminded me a bit, uh, Kyle, I must say, of the kind of mm. uh, cybernetic uh, feedback mechanisms. Yeah, he, he's, he's just describing uh, feedback the way that, that he's, he's just describing the way that feedback regulates a system. I mean, it, it's, yeah, that's what it is. Um. <laughs> yeah, it does, it does feel like, it feels like, I know this Esri would be here expounding on this point if if I wasn't, but it feels like something like dialectics leading to leading to systems theory, like is what you're seeing here, and maybe that's us being Marxist reading it back in there. But that also seems to be what I'm looking at. Like there's a systemic contradiction; it needs to be fixed. We have an explanation, but it goes back on itself. 
and we didn't have a feedback loop. Like, yeah, the 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 thing is that uh, you need to add on the point that the produced solution also produces another tension, and then you've got it right. Right, but so that's that's Hegel's infinite dialectical recursion, though. Like, because every 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 offheaving generates another dialectical contradiction, in which that's how history moves forward. And I'm, yeah. I'm only bringing this up because I actually I hate I actually kind of hate the fact we talk in weird Hegelese because it's confusing to every normie out there in the world. But like this does this is modeling pretty. It's not the same, but it's pretty close to what to what Hegel and Marx were getting at. Marx wanted to just remove all the God stuff from this crap. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the, the thing is, uh, yeah, you just need to have that that progression forward to another problem, because like what you could be describing here is just like a really simple like, oh, it's it's a thermostat. It's regulating the internal temperature of the house, you know? Yeah, like I, th I think you feel like uh, my problem with this one is here that like that the the functional uh, solutions and the, the the kind of problems that come from attention, they are just like never seem to react onto the original systemic tension. Like that's the problem with this functional diagram that like you can have system, you can have these uh, mini problems that kind of develop off the systemic tension and they can squirrel off in a, in a big loop somewhere. But sometimes that squirreling off with these other solutions can be large enough to act back and hit that systemic tension and reorganize stuff. And, and that's the process that you see that one arrow coming from systemic tension over to problem in the I mean, solution box. That's there's no there's no reaction back to there. Which yeah, you know, but I think this is kind of like just taking like Aristotle's prime mover as like a like oh we just need something to get this system going. That's really all the tension is doing here. Because if you look at the next diagram, it's clear that like the tension is carried forward through the chain. Take this one, hey, Kyle, yeah. Okay, so yeah, so uh, the Tilly's model is like an elaboration of Stinchcomb here. Uh, so um, Tilly's model of durable inequality consists of a series of interlocking functional explanations of this type. Uh, so initially we have the tension, which is like the prime mover, uh, scarcity of and competition over important economic resources. So this creates a positive charge, and then we have a problem, insecurity of control over important economic resources, which is implied by the tension. So that feeds forward to a functional solution, or in other words, a new tension, which resolves the previous problem, but at the cost of producing a tension that feeds forward into the next one. So it's, it's, this, is, this is Hegel's dialectic, right? Um, the... the What's what's missing, what, but what's missing here is that like these actual secondary order effects can come back and actually loop back onto prior tensions and destroy that original one. So say, for example, we have a revolution. Potentially, yes, potentially. Like you have all these like problems of exploitation, blah, blah, blah. And then you have a revolutionary moment and that goes back to try and get rid of uh, yes. scarcity of economic resources. There's no that final loop. It's very telling in this book that final that ability for that loop back to the to the square, the first square, the first tension, original tension is never it's never given. Yeah, this this one feeds forward infinitely and it doesn't feed back from the end to the beginning. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's so it's Bernsteinism in a chart. Yes. Boo. <laughs> Boo Bernstein. Boo anime as well, Tiberius, before you get going. Okay. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> but I do really like the I know what's I, going on here. I know what's going on here. What, Tension. Tension. <laughs> Problem. Tom Tom <laughs> needs to pick on someone about anime. Problem, <laughs> Sophie is not here. Functional solution, Tiberius is here and a likely candidate to be picked on. <laughs> Problem, Tiberius doesn't like anime. <laughs> Functional solution, new tension. Ignore Tiberius's actual preference. Exactly. <laughs> And so on, infinite regress, but never coming back to the original tension. Never, <laughs> ever returning. That's why I like this graph so much. No, I do like the graph, though. I do like this understanding. I do think this is, like, Tilly explains kind of core core things that we see here. Now, I think the revolutionary element is essentially excised from this. That's that's my main problem with, with this stuff. But I think that I really like this kind of functional explanation for uh, sociological problems. Yeah, when I when I put this on a revolutionary on our modal on a modal model, it starts it literally starts to spiral in my head because I start seeing like this little graph, and then you hit emulation and adaption, then then rupture, new tension, turn back, go through it again, turn back, go through it again, and it just starts doing this. Hegel spiral ever upwards into a more perfect world. Or a, a more, more, a more a tense more, world. A more tense, yeah. shitty world. Yeah, a more, ger a more German world. <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, boo! Boo. Oh, no. Um, Germans and Italians, the only two... Actually, no, wait. Germans, Italians, and the English. Wait, no. Germans, Italians, the English, and the French. They're the people that you can be racist against. Basically, uh, Western uh, Europe. Which, by You're the in way, the spiral which... now, Tiberius. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I got to say, isn't that like Engels' hey, list of world historic peoples? <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> you're allowed to you're allowed to hate the uh the imperialists. Americans too. Fucking hell, I can't believe you let the Americans fuck you, Tiberius. Right. Well that's because the Americans don't exist. They're they're a nebulous Ur Empire. That's true. An error. An error, if ever there was one. Now, Tiberius, do you want to take this underlying Marxist logic of Tilly? All right. So Tilly's underlying Marxist logic. So Marxism being the theoretical tradition in social science that comes closest to this general framework. But Tilly makes almost no reference to Marxist theory in his book, which, you know, kind of I, I thought was kind of an interesting point. Like, uh, Derek, I haven't actually gone and read the the Tilly book so I'm only going off of what you're right here has and you kind of have to wonder whether or not uh Tilly like actually read and incorporated Marx or just sort of like stumbled into the same thing just kind of by happenstance it kind of an interesting thing to think about but I don't know how how useful that is actually bourgeois scientist reads Marx claims never read Marx comes up with theory kind of like based on Marx and it gets a name for himself. Keynes. <coughs> Keynes. <coughs> Excuse me. No. Keynes. No. Keynes no. Is anti. 
Boo, can't. Boo, can't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Boo under uh, consumptionism. Boo under consumptionism, Keens and another fucking guys. Yeah, so uh, instead of viewing Tilly's work as a fusion of Marx and Weber, it is more appropriate to see Tilly as imposing some Weberian ideas and insights into the Marxist tradition, and it enriches an essentially Marxist form of class analysis by extending that analysis to include forms of categorical inequality that are not systematically discussed by Marx, which I think is a fair point. I, I mean, that's this basically like, the entire point of the book is to like start from from a Marxist foundation and then attempt to include a a more nuanced and complicated, I guess, sense of of class in order to better explain the class dynamics of capitalism. I, I think we'll get it once we start getting into the the back half of this book, I think we'll have some issues going we, forward. We will. To, we will. Yeah. This part of the book I remember liking once I got through all the charts and figured out what the hell it was actually saying. My my thing, uh, Tom, is I actually think if you were back engineering Weber, you could accidentally get to Marx because Marx uh, because Weber is, you know, mucking around with Marx explicitly because he's, you know, an SPD guy. Whereas like Charles Tillich is probably being all Harvardy, probably has read some Marx, but I given given his wording he he may just literally have just been like, well, let's apply systems theory to Weber and see what happens. And lo and behold, you remarxify it. I don't know. Like, I, I find it hard if you're like some Harvard lecturer that you couldn't have done like a couple of slides on Marx's sociological theory. Oh, like, yeah, that, that's totally true. I mean, he's got to know some of it. But like, you just ex you excise the language. You know, it's an age old trick, isn't it? Well, you, I mean, you change it, it, terms. I mean, well, even the other thing is Marxists did that in America for like 50 years. Like, that's why, like, the Frankfurt School, whenever it says originally said critical theory, it meant Marxism. Christopher Lash, when he would mention he would mention dialectics, he means Marxism because they were all afraid of getting uh, red scared out of the university. So, like, they would speak in code. Yeah, this seems to kind of sit fairly neatly with that kind of tension uh, that, you know, that you can understand that. Uh, what, what year was Tilly's written, though? Was Tilly's stuff not written in, like, the 70s or 80s? Charles Tilly, Durable Inequality. Let's look it up. It, uh, Tilly, 70s through 90s. War and history, coercion, his stuff on sociolog sociologies of war. That's, 19, that's the 1998. Oh, yeah. So, so, so yeah, that, that you can't, you can be an open Marxist by that point, so that you can't, that can't be the reason. Okay, so the underlying Marxist logic, reasons why Tilly's approach is so close to the Marxist tradition. Number one, exploitation is at the centerpiece of Marxist theory of class as it is for Tilly. Number two, forms of categorical inequality emerge and are sustained in Tilly's analysis, above all because of the ways they help stabilize exploitation and secondarily because of the ways they facilitate opportunity hoarding. Marx certainly believed that class categories emerge for this reason. They make possible a stable reproduction of exploitation to a far greater extent than if the exploitation existed simply on the basis of fluid relations between individuals. And three, Tilly treats the relevance of culture and beliefs for inequality almost entirely in terms of the ways that they help reproduce categorical inequality, but not as autonomous, powerful causal forces in their own right. 
This is much closer to Marx's materialism, specifically his functional is functionalist theory of the relationship between the economic base and the ideological structure than Weber's relation view of the relationship between culture and social structure. Yeah. No, point three is um, how it's different from classical intersectional theory, because intersectional theory sees all the all the various inputs as as causally equal, because they approach it from a standpoint of legality. Originally, although that gets it gets actually epistemologized through standpoint epistemology later, whereas Tilly does what I would what I used to try to argue for, which was like a what we would what I tried to call materialist intersectionality, which is like assume that class relations or the relation are, are assume that relations that reproduce social life are primary, and then map on on top of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean it's interesting because like he frames exploitation as the key motor of the system, but doesn't necessarily say that exploitation is exclusive to the relationship between uh, capitalist and worker. It's, it's right. more general, more general theory than that. Which is interesting though, because it, because unlike say, when we talk about Marxist social relations, you would have, you could have this without having in almost any mode, right? So, like, when yeah. we articulate this stuff, we have to be modally limited. To, like, we're talking about capitalism. That's not how feudalism works. That's not how the weird shit between feudalism and capitalism works. It's only capitalism that has this particular bimodal distribution. You know, somebody like this who's actually, you know, pulls it in a different direction it is, like, Peter Turchin, who does this between elites. right so he can map it on in, in history. What, what is interesting though is exploitation here is, is the primary driver. And I guess that is, we would say that's unique to capitalism. I don't know that Tilly would, right? Because like in Marxist stuff, other, other modes of social life are not as driven by exploitation. They're driven by like outright, you know, accumulation or by, by domination yeah. or he, by oppression, etc. He has a uh, different definition of exploitation. Is it the Romer one? Maybe. It could be. I mean, he's, he's basically just saying that exploitation is whenever you in some way force someone to produce something for you that they don't get themselves. Right? Right. So, so it, would, it would apply across historical categories, although it would have very different forms. Right. This is why Marx is trying to talk to anyone else is difficult because we don't define our terms the same as they do. Yeah. Anyway, I, I could see how this could map to a, uh, a sort of modal historical explanation, but yeah, the terminology is different. Kyle, do you want to take the next couple of uh, the next couple of Marxist logics here? Sure. So the reasons why Tilly's approach is so close to the Marxist tradition. Number four. I feel like I'm doing like a YouTube video. It's five reasons why Tilly's approach is so close to the Marxist tradition. Yeah, I mean, we're on like YouTube and right subscribe. now. So. Yeah, why Tilly's approach totally sucks. <laughs> You'll never believe what Tilly has to say. Uh, okay. In the name of like, share, subscribe. Amen. Marxism can't be combined with other logics of oppression unless... Yeah, okay. Anyway, functional explanations 
play a central role in classical historical materialism. They play at most a marginal role in Weber's social theory. In Marxism, class relations are functionally explained by the level of development of the forces of production, and superstructures are functionally explained by the necessary conditions for stabilizing and reproducing class relations. Point five, in classical historical materialism, class relations endure and remain stable so long as the forces of production continue to develop, becoming vulnerable once the forces of production are fettered. The rationale for this claim is that the costs of sustaining class relations rise when the forces of production stagnate. Tilly argues the central condition for the erosion of systems of categorical inequality is rising transaction costs for maintaining existing relations and the lowered costs of an alternative. Weber has nothing remotely like this in his account of social change and inequality. I really like that number five. I, I think that's how I understand the contradictions of capitalism. If Marx is correct in his understanding of the of the key core central contradictions in capitalism, like that the operating costs essentially to the system are higher, uh, they're going to be the fetters, and if something new comes through, it's going with less fettered, less less costs associated with it, it will dominate. And uh, you know. Uh, I, I think this is a very kind of a nice way to understand that idea of the fetters as a function of transaction costs. Yeah, and I think it's interesting relative to, say, McNair's theory of political succession between modes of production, because in this case, it's sort of a lot easier to imagine something like the British aristocracy becoming capitalists at the same time as being landlords, because that's a lower transaction cost system to buy into. Right. Um, this gets a, this gets Marxist out of a lot of typology problems, honestly, and and explains a lot of what we actually see. What I think is interesting about this, it also explains divisions within capitalism itself, because we keep on seeing like the political superstructure, you know, the political economy around capitalism, once we hit probability crisis, it changes. I mean, you go from, you know, classical liberal entrepreneur state just sets up the market and lets it go to proto Keynesianism to pure Keynesianism past social war uh, in America, post-war social compact. I think that's true for pretty much everywhere that we would be from uh, into crisis of profitability in the 70s. Neoliberalism lowers transaction costs for a little while, but the feathers reaccumulate, etc. So it both explains things between these large historical epochs and within them how they change in and of themselves. Yeah, I think that's fundamentally correct. Yeah. Uh, so basically, Tiller is better than Weber. That's what we're saying. Weber, T boo, Tilly, boo, Tilly. Boo, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, ironically, ironically, the person who doesn't claim to be a Marxist and has no relationship to the social democratic tradition is more of a Marxist. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Not, not remarkably, though. Not remarkably. The vast majority of people who claim to be Marxists have non-Marxist kind of politics when it comes down to it, if you ask me. Most well, of them yeah, are less they're all dirty are revisionists, work. and we have the correct and true line. That is true. That is true. Never mind we don't agree with each other on everything, but in so okay. much that we do, we are correct. Yeah. <laughs> I forgive I forgive Tiberius for the anime. 
because he made a good point. Okay. Yeah. Now, Derek, do you want to take this last sure. one? Tilly's arguments are not merely recapitulations of Marxist themes in new language. Take that, Tom. His attempt to subsume gender, race, nationality, and every other form of inequality under a unitary conceptual framework goes well beyond Marx's question mark term. I would also, just as a side note, I'd also say it may go well beyond Marx because Marx doesn't write about most of those things. It doesn't go beyond Engels. Engels did write about a lot of that. His differentiation of opportunity hoarding from exploitation is generally absent from most varieties of Marx's class analysis. I, that's pretty true. His elaboration and emulation of adaption as mechanisms for stabilizing categorical inequity in, introduces concepts that are not explicitly present in Marx's discussions of similar themes. I'd have to read the entire mega for that, but I think in the main text is true. Yeah, but he says Marxist discussions. He doesn't say Marxist. Oh, yeah. Uh, Marxist discussions? No, there's other There's other ways of doing it. Would you... What, the the, the, uni, the Subsuni, gender, race, nationality. I think nationality and gender were things that Marx and Engels actually really did talk about. Race, they kind of avoid. They have an anti-racist stance, but some of them are... Some of them, when they when they apply like stuff like geographic materialism, you know, which they were both into, they can get a little weird. I think that E.O. Wright may have a bit more of a point here regarding the, a thing that he said earlier, which is that Marx didn't systematically address these questions uh, to the same degree as he addressed, uh, you know, political economy so I, I think that that may be accurate uh, because there's there's definitely anti-racist stance. There's a critique of gender repression. There's a you know uh, a a whole bunch of engagement with the, the the national question. But I'm not sure that those are those subjects are addressed systematically. Although I guess Engels does Engels attempt does. that with, with gender, right? Yeah, like, and the he, origins of the he, family is gender. Yeah, but yeah. Like, he, he, like if you look at it, it's like he attempts to subsume all of these different things, all these types of inequality under a unitary conceptual framework. Like, I, I, I don't know, like, like the forces and relations of production not include all of those things and materialism. Like, is that not a unitary framework that explains all of them? The fact that they didn't explicitly go into, say, some of these as well, much as others doesn't mean that they're not combined under a unitary conceptual framework. Well, I, I just think that's I, a real stretch. I, I would say that saying that nationality actually, but Marx doesn't deal with nationality under the production things, except that states exist, but he doesn't define states that way. He defines nationality for Marx is defined by longstanding ethnic differences that develop over time, which he actually, in the few letters we have about it, he explains geographically, which is still, I guess, still in his broad materialism. So like, but it, he sees it as a, like more of an outpouring of like the way people adapt to their environment more than production itself. It's even more primary, maybe even. Yeah, it's kind um, of like the climatic theory of nation, right? Like, oh, yeah. you know, uh, German people think a lot because they're in cold places. They have to stay inside. Like that's uh, that's uh, a thing I heard a lot in Japan. How, yeah, how does that ex how does that explain the Polish? Actually, you know what? I have one more thing to say about this is that um, in his mid 
mid-series feedback episode, Mike Duncan went in for the climatic theory. I, I don't know why, but he was like, I, I think there's something to this. I'd like to look into it more. Jared Diamond believes in the climatic of national development. I think there are probably stuff around the types of what the core commodity or food was. Like, I think yeah. there's some truth to that. But like when the difference between Germany and Poland, it's just a load of rubbish. You know, I think, you know, like, I think there are like the difference between Ireland and England, like, Jesus. Like, what's you know, that? What's... that you, you, you guys have better liquor? I don't know. Like, I'm highly skeptical, but I wasn't insult, trying to insult Polish people because I like Polish people. I spent a lot of time in Poland. I, I like Poland. Don't let people think I'm being anti-Polish here. I think that there is a difference between just to say that these various like categories of like identity or, you know, race, gender, that kind of stuff are subsumed into, into the, the framework of exploitation under, you know, whatever system in specific capitalism and to, to give a, a systematic explanation of how and why particularly with the emulation and adaptation, I think that it is, I think it's broadly true that there hasn't really been a whole lot of explicitly Marxist theory going into that kind of explanation of the ways in which these categories are reified and uphold the systems of exploitation well i would say there probably has been but but this is where i guess that we you can agree with it all right they're not unit they're not unit they're not linked in this way so like when you read Noah agnevyev's race trader when he when he talks about race relations to capital and and all that it's systematically worked out and it actually comes to very similar conclusions but it's less formalized it's more anecdotal um about how these all these things work and so it's not i don't think it's completely fair to say that marxists didn't deal with this or didn't even like try to systematize it what we didn't do is we didn't have a language of systems theory to express it so we couldn't generalize about it as much so we kind of saw them as co-emergent but distinct systems and this actually would indicate that they're not Right, right. Yeah. So, so, you know, various Marxists would say, oh, let, let's look at race in the context of the system of exploitation under capitalism. But yeah, there, there was no, there was no generalizations of the patterns and systems in which race was integrated into capitalism that could be explanatory for other types of categorical exploitation. Yeah. What I find interesting about this, if if Marx had stated this all extremely clearly in this way, man, we'd have been easier to call like late Stalinist Soviet Union out on certain things. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> if only Marx had lived another hundred years to accomplish another 20% of what he had attempted to accomplish. Right. I mean, I, I always go back to Hal Draper. There was supposed to, and Capital was supposed to be five volumes two of which were on like nations and the development of nations from political economy. And we never got anywhere near that. Maybe Marx, you know, could have been uh, given cryogenic uh, 
uh, freezing until until such a point where uh, ADHD meds uh, became available and uh, he could actually write at a steady pace. Um, ADHD meds and topical antibiotics would have helped him. Quite yeah, a bit. that's yeah. right. Both. Yes. <laughs> we, we clear up those boils on his ass. Let's let's get it straight. That would have helped a lot. The, the other thing as well, what we really, what we're all wanting to know is what would Marx think about cancel culture? That's the thing that I want to know about. I hate you right now. I was going to say, <laughs> I, or if, uh, or if the Soviets hadn't decided that Marxism was functionally illegal in the Soviet Union, that would be nice too. Although they did print print a lot of Marx. It's crazy, like they printed loads of Marx books. People just mustn't have read any of them. They just had to have them under under shelves. <laughs> Well, if you took it too seriously and and were an outspoken Marxist too much, then you would get purged. Well, I mean, to be fair, that's only really true in the thirties. Yeah, in the Stalinist thirty forties. Yeah, yeah. Like by the fifties and sixties, you could be a good Marxist and you wouldn't get purged. Just no one would hear anything you said. They put you in a in a in like an obscure university and like a lot of Vostok, and you just freeze. But you'd still be alive and could do work. And we, you know, we might find about your stuff later after the soviet thaw but you know vladivostok uh, is such a cool place i'd love to go visit vladivostok seriously in my childhood vladivostok was like it was like timbuktu and vladivostok there were these like places that weren't really real <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i almost took a boat to vladivostok from korea but i i from korea that's gone. a long way that's 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 like that's a thousand mile boat journey at least is it yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's it's how close is Vladivostok to anything? Like, it's, it's close to Japan. I thought you were going to say Japan. I would have thought it's not that far from northern Japan. Island I didn't live like in Japan. I lived in Korea. Yeah, well, what are you doing, Derek? <laughs> Any final stuff on this underlying Marxist stuff? This underlying Marxist logic before we wrap up? Are we all Marxist logic? I mean, out? we're gonna we're gonna get into a lot of the issues with. Tilly's uh, argument uh, in the, probably the next session. So uh, I think we can leave it for then to talk about that stuff. you'd like to help fund the book that Donald and myself are writing about communist economic planning, please head over to the website theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com where you can donate to our fund to help us get this book out in a finite time. Everybody who donates will get a signed copy of the book when it's released. So head on over there today and help us with this really important project.